Let's begin with the Hail Mary, then, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. We have a few more coming, but we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Trent, the Great Council of Trent, 16th century. 1546 to 1563. Just to recap a little bit of last week, what TJ was talking about, met in three different sessions in the northern Italian city of Trent, Trento, up near the Alps, near Innsbruck. Two great emphases on Trent. You see, um, there had been calls for a council for a hundred years before Trent, even back in the 15th century, there were reformers that had been calling for a council to reform the church, to reform uh, discipline, not doctrine, but uh, church practices. Some of the financial corruption that had crept into the church over hundreds of years, uh, some of the uh, worldliness, some of the, some of the uh, Really, some of the uh, Renaissance worldliness, so to speak. Um, but that call for reform was was uh, exacerbated, of course, by Luther. So what 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 happened, of course, was after a hundred years of calls for reform of discipline, of, of church practices to clean things up and to return the church to a to a, to a um, more authentic witness, uh, the Reformation broke out. And Luther all of a sudden was using those abuses against the church. So Luther's fierce denunciation of the worldliness of the papacy uh, sort of spurred, spurred the, the, uh, the church on to, to go ahead and call a council, finally. And T.J. mentioned there were so many complications. Uh, two main reasons why they had not called a council. One was France, who was in constant warfare against the Holy Roman Empire, Spain and the Habsburgs. And France, for, for many, many years, had sort of forbidden the council or refused to send anybody because uh, with the fear that it would strengthen Charles, Charles V. Anything that would strengthen Charles, France was against. Even though France was a, quote, Catholic country, France was allying itself with Protestants, even Turks sometimes, to weaken Charles. So if you think politics is corrupt now, <laughs> it was extraordinarily corrupt and cynical then. Uh, and the other reason was that the popes feared, feared calling a council because of a couple of councils that have been called in the in the 15th century, Constance and Florence, I think Basil, but uh, in which in which some of the more powerful bishops uh, propose an idea called conciliarism, which is the old idea that the council should be superior to the pope. This bishops versus pope 
bishops versus papacy conflict. Who has the ultimate power? So the Pope sort of feared calling a council with the idea that the bishops would try to abrogate or undermine papal power. So you got two sort of political maneuvers going on throughout the whole council, all 18 years of it. France versus Spain and the Habsburgs, on the other hand. And on the other hand, the bishops versus the papacy, who both wanted to reform the church, but, but were both still, uh, still cognizant of their own authority. The popes didn't want to do anything to undermine papal authority. So there's a tension throughout all, all of the council when it comes to reform, and I'm going to talk about the reform element. TJ is going to talk about doctrine in a little while. Because remember, reform had been proposed for, for 100 years before the whole doctrinal controversy broke over Luther and the Reformation. The other thing I wanted to mention was that you get the idea by if you read Luther and you read all the denunciations, you get the idea that the church was just totally corrupt from top to bottom uh, prior to the council, which is not true. The church was, was corrupt from the head, from Rome, from the curia. But in, 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 in many places, uh, in Spain especially, even in England, in Italy and in, in, in France, even parts of Germany, the, the church that most people encountered, the local parish, the local priest, was was not corrupt. Now, now, now they were they were corrupt priests, they were ignorant priests. But on the whole, uh, Catholicism was was vibrant with uh, personal piety and uh, basically the center of of of, of life throughout the high middle ages even into the early renaissance the local parish the parish guilds the lay orders the confraternities uh, the feast days the entire life cycle revolved around around the local parish a great book to read is an english historian named eamon duffy who wrote a book called the voices of morbath he also wrote a very well-known book called The Stripping of the Altars, which talks about the English Reformation. But his point, he's one of these revisionist historians going back to look at what really happened during that time. His point is that the local church was, was full of, of, uh, of, of pious uh, uh, guilds and altar guilds and confraternities and lay orders and people going to mass and people celebrating feast days and people providing vestments and and all that was sort of ripped out after the Reformation. So the point is that, it, is that there was corruption in Rome and the higher levels and, and, and in, in the cardinals and in some of the bishoprics. But at the local level, uh, in many ways, the church was was vibrant. And we talked about the Renaissance and the humanist, uh, the new learning, the humanism, and, and they had also called for reform, particularly in education. So that's sort of the way things were before Trent. Um, the other, the other, the other element that. Um, 
that had that had kept the church vibrant, particularly on the local level, was the mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, who did most of the preaching in the Middle Ages and particularly the early Renaissance. So you may have had a, a local priest that wasn't that well educated, but you also had friars and Dominican Franciscan friars and monasteries and Benedictine monks who were in some cases extremely well educated and extremely good preachers. And you had the exceptions, of course, the old, uh, the, what became a sort of a stereotype in the Middle Ages, the, the, uh, the, the, the overweight uh, friar and the lusty monk, if you read Chaucer. Um, but the fact that those were exceptions is the reason they became stereotypes. So um, the, way, the way Trent happened, when Paul III, the great, the great Renaissance reformer pope, when Paul III finally decided to call the council, uh, Trent was composed of uh, three, three orders who could vote, bishops, heads of orders, in other words, the head of the Franciscans, the head of the Dominicans, the head of the uh, Capuchins, and abbots, abbots of large monasteries. So those were the voting members. Uh, the other people who attended Trent, very important people, were, were envoys from courts. So, for example, Charles V would have his envoys there. France would have its envoys. The German princes would send an envoy. Uh, they couldn't vote, but they could talk. They could influence the council. The, the very important group were the papal legates, those men sent from the pope from Rome to Trent to essentially set the agenda. So the way Trent worked was the papal legates controlled the agenda for pope, I mean for Trent, based upon the pope, because the pope is the pope. He's the head of the church. So the agenda for Trent was set from wrong by the papal legates. They could not vote unless they were bishops. In some cases they were. Many of them were cardinals. But they played a hugely important role in, in uh, Trent. And the last group, very large group, were theologians. Extremely learned people, primarily from the Mendicant orders, not always, but they would be Augustinian theologians, Franciscans, Dominicans. Those were the, uh, as we would say, the quote, experts, expert opinions in trend. So when an issue of doctrine came up, the theologians would be given that topic to discuss. And they would go off and discuss among themselves and then present their finding to the council and the council would vote on it. Remember, only the bishops, the heads of orders, and the abbots could vote. When a reform issue came up, it wasn't given to the theologians. It was, it was uh, given to the canonists, people skilled in canon law. Uh, and again, that agenda was set by the papal legates. So the way Trent worked was, uh, I T.J. mentioned last time, the great debate was, do we do reform? which Charles wanted, the princes, some of the bishops wanted to reform the church, or do we do doctrine? Do we challenge Luther? Charles, for years, was under the illusion, really, that we could bring the Protestants back in, that Luther could, we could reconcile with, with the Lutherans. 
So we don't want to deal with the doctrine. We just want to clean up the church. We want to get rid of corruption. And then we can bring them all back. Which was a little bit naive. It was never going to happen anyway. But that was the, uh, the Im- imperialist group. Or the, uh, the reform group. The other side, the papal group, the legates, uh, primarily the Italian bishops and cardinals wanted to deal with reform. I mean, <laughs> with doctrine, wanted to confront Luther. The reason we called the council was to put down heresy, which is, which is really not true. The reason they called the council was to do both. So you had that tension going on the whole time. It's really fascinating. You've got one group wanting to push reform and to minimize the doctrinal differences. You have another group, the papal group, wanting to minimize reform for fear that it would undermine the authority of the Pope. The papal group's position was the Pope will reform the church from the head. Let's talk about doctrine. So it's a wonder anything got done, but actually it did. <laughs> actually it did. Extraordinary amount got done. Over, like I said, three, three sessions over 18 years. Does all that make sense? It's fairly complicated, but it's important to know those kind of tensions going on. In the, in the, in I'm not sure. Probably, probably. I think that sort of set a precedent, right? So the reform issues, I want to talk a little bit about reform. I mentioned a little bit of this last time. The um, Probably the most, uh, the most contentious issue, reform issue, the one that almost split the council many times, even the third session, that almost... Um, almost ended the council was the old controversy about residence. The word residence, which simply meant must a bishop stay in his diocese? Must a bishop reside in his diocese? Must he preach in his diocese? Must he essentially be a bishop? Must he must he oversee and rule and care for the souls of the people in his diocese. Which had been church law for years, hundreds of years. But the problem was that uh, uh, something called dispensations. The Pope had always, being the Pope, had, had the right to grant dispensations from canon law. So even though the law, the canon law said the bishop must reside in his diocese, the Pope could grant dispensations and allow the bishops to reside in Rome or other places, especially Rome, which became very attractive in the um, 16th century. I mean, do you want to be in the wilds of Germany or do you want to be in Rome with uh, Michelangelo and Raphael and Bramante and, <laughs> and Italian food? I mean, so over years, over many, many years, uh, it became an abuse. And you may have hundred. You may have a hundred bishops living in Rome. Some of them cardinals. Remember, some cardinals were bishops and priests. Some were not. Some are simply nephews. And that was another issue. So the council had to deal with that thorny issue of how do you get these bishops back 
back into their diocese where they belong. That became, uh, that had financial ramifications too because dispensations tended to uh, be accompanied with gifts. So it also brought in a lot of money, a lot of money to the curia, to the papacy. So, and the council dealt with that multiple times, finally reached a, a compromise. It became complicated with, 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 a, with tied up with the theological issue of, of holy orders. Where does a bishop receive his consecration, his right to serve? Does he receive it from God? Is it a divine law? Use divina, or is it a canon law? Does the bishop receive his, what do you call it, consecration? What's the bishop, really? um, investiture or something? No. Investiture, I guess. Does he receive it from the pope, or does he receive it from God? If he receives it from God, then that tends to undermine the authority of the pope. And it's a divine law, and, he has, and the pope cannot grant him dispensations. Which wipes out that whole thing. If he receives it from the Pope, then the Pope can grant him dispensation. So all that complicated matter. Theologians and groups arguing on both sides. The papal group not willing to give up that authority, not willing to say that the bishop uh, uh, received his uh, orders directly from God. Sort of, you might call it the divine right of bishops. A lot of the council was, was uh, a lot of the reform issues was, was uh, repeatedly dealing with the role and function and, of, of the bishops. Because the bishops were, as, as today, the uh, descendants of the apostles and the almost uh, sole authority within, within the diocese. So there was that, that tension going on. That was finally resolved by a um, compromise in which they simply agreed not to mention the word divina use, but call it something else. And uh, like most compromises, it seemed, seemed, to, seemed to work. What the council did was uh, essentially whitewash the whole issue of divine right and, and uh, simply not use that phrase and say, uh, without a doubt, bishops must remain in their diocese. The whole, one of the critical points of the, of the council was to clean up the whole idea of the bishop. And, and a great example of that is St. Charles Borromeo, who was a papal legate in the third session and did as much as anyone to bring the council to a successful conclusion and became a saint and became sort of the model of the reformed, I don't use the word reform, but the the, the, the proper role of a Catholic bishop, who as a bishop of Milan instituted all these reforms in his diocese and sort of became the model uh, from then on for what a Catholic bishop should be and, and was eventually canonized. We'll talk about him later when we talk about the great saints of the Counter-Reformation, but Charles Borromeo was at the council and sort of personally put into practice these reforms in Milan and became sort of the, the center of counter-reformation reform. Why is that considered a compromise? It seems like they pick one side. Yeah, that's not a compromise. I mean, they, 
Well, it threatened to split the council apart. I mean, no dispensations. They said go back to the. They, they did basically. They did say that. They did, but they avoided using the term divine law, which was the sticking point. But it essentially accomplished that reform. And who accomplished that really was uh, the great papal legates in the Third Council. Uh, uh, Cardinal Moroni and uh, and uh, Cardinal Borromeo. See, the other issue was nepotism, but what the popes tended to do during the Renaissance and even earlier was to was to uh, promote their nephews, in some cases their children, which they had sired before they became pope, not afterwards, uh, but in most cases their nephews. So, which made sense because you were elected to pope, you had a lot of opposition in Rome, so you had to surround yourself with your supporters. So even, even the reform pope, even Pius III, who was supporting reform, had appointed at least four nephews as cardinals. When I was 14, we became a cardinal when I was 15 or something. And, and, and some of them became great church leaders, but that was... Charles, Charles Borromeo was a nephew of, of uh, Pius IV. The last pope. Remember, there were three popes during the, the council. Uh, Pius III, Julius III, and uh, Pius IV. In between, in between there was, uh, was Paul IV, who was, we don't even want to, we won't go into that, sort of the Puritan pope. The other great reform issue, one was the issue of getting, uh, reforming the bishops, getting them. The other was, uh, and really probably, probably the second most important thing the council did in, as part of reform was education. The idea of seminaries, which had a huge impact as the church moved forward. The idea that priests should be trained, educated in theology. And so one of the things the council wanted to require was a seminary in every diocese to train priests. And given that education impetus, given the rise of the Renaissance, of, of humanism and its emphasis on learning and, and, and culture, and given the rise of the Jesuits, the great religious orders who essentially was a source of most of the seminaries, most of the education, either Franciscan, Dominican, and increasingly the Jesuits, who became the great force of Catholic education for the next hundreds of years. As Father Newman says, a once great Catholic order, the Jesuits. Who, uh, so if nothing else, those two reforms uh, sort of set the church on a path for, for uh, really for the next, there wasn't another council for 300 years, the Vatican won. So the council was in that sense very successful. But like most councils, uh, its success is in its implementation later as, as you go forward. And, and those two, primarily those two, what, those two reform principles were, were crucial to strengthening the church to meet the challenges of the, of the Reformation and, and go forward. Strengthening and cleaning up the bishoprics, 
The other thing also was, was dealing with the cardinal situation, which, like I mentioned, over the years, the popes have simply used cardinals uh, as to, to create uh, supporters, primarily sometimes family members. So there was uh, some, a lot of discussion about the cardinals should be qualified men of, uh, of education and high morals, which had not always been the case, obviously. Uh, those were those were, were tremendous successes. Remember the difficult when the council ended. This is an interesting uh, quote. Uh, when the council finally ended after eighteen years and all sort. Remember they had plague. Remember they had marauding Lutheran armies on the outskirts of Trent. I mean. The, 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 this, this was not, uh, you know, let's go downtown to the Westin and have a, have a meeting. You know, th this, was, uh, this was difficult. This was dangerous. This was physically difficult. And, and, and they managed to bring it off. And here's what an observer, this, I thought this was wonderful at the end. Cardinal Paleotti described the scene when Trent finally came to a conclusion. I cannot possibly communicate with joy what joy all present felt and how they blessed God, the author of all good, and gave him thanks. I saw so many grave and distinguished prelates with tears of happiness flowing from their eyes, congratulating even those with whom they were earlier at odds. There was no one who did not express with his face, his words, and his whole body the very height of happiness, praising God to whom be honor, power, and glory forever and ever. That they had finally pulled this off. What is the, the title of the book? This is called "What Happened at the Council." Trent. And is this the one you mentioned earlier? No. Um, uh, that author is Eamon Duffy, D-U-F-F-Y. Mm -hmm. Wonderful book uh, about the English Reformation. What actually happened in England during the Reformation? And then he also. The other one that he wrote is called "The Voices of Morbath." The, the voices. Morbath, M-O-R-E-B-A-T-H, which is uh, really a fascinating uh, description of one small parish in England and what happened to it during the Reformation. Fascinating. TJ is going to talk about doctrine, confronting Luther. You asked about Vatican II that an interesting thing about Vatican II is it's essentially the same with like all councils. Like every council has theological experts, the bishops who actually vote, um, observers, ambassadors. Like, but the biggest difference between Vatican II was just numbers. I mean, the Trent, the different sessions varied. I think one that had 170 bishops was or voting, 170 voting. Is that right? 100, 170 voting people at Trent. Yeah, like that was the big one. One of them only had 40, um, 40 voting bishops. I think that was the first one. Um, as opposed to Vatican II, which had 2,500. And you can imagine, just for logistically, one of the reasons why Trent is so concise and clear and successful is it's a lot easier to get things done with 40 people than 2,500 people. Um, now, what I gave you was there's actually a lot of documents that come from Trent. It's not like Vatican II where it's a giant tome um, of documents. I mean, but it would still be a hefty little chunk. And 
So what I gave you is sort of some highlights of Trent. Um, <clears throat> and we'll go through in a few minutes, or for a few minutes, and then I actually wanted to go through um, some of the list of what are called the canons of Trent. So you sort of have two basic parts um, in the documents that they did. You would have the theological statements where they would, it's basically like a treatise where they would go through and give the explanation. And then after that, they would always have a list of canons, which are basically like the list of errors um, that you can't believe. Um, so basically it's, I'll say it again, you have the sort of the essay explaining like this is the church's teaching on the matter. And then here are the list of basically self-excommunicatable um, beliefs or like heresies about that teaching. Um, sometimes they're called the anathemas of Trent because they're always um, worded the same way, which is the traditional way that you do it. It is be like, if you believe this heresy, they would say, let you be anathema, um, which means that you're self-excommunicating, um, that you're sort of putting yourself out of communion with the church by believing something that the church has explicitly condemned as heresy. Does that make sense? Um, anathema does not mean you're definitively going to hell. Um, which Protestants like to think uh, um, when trying to bash Trent, um, it means that you're putting yourself outside of communion with the church. Um, all right. Now, I thought it was very interesting going through, and actually one of the nice things I liked about this, um, this summary or this collection was they do the numbers at the side like poetry, so it's easy to find references, like on the side of the page, so you can see like 5, 10, 15. Does that make sense? I don't know if you see that. So on the first page, when you get down to the bottom of line 16, showing that this is, so this is the bull of convocation. So this is the Pope, like giving the official, like calling for the council. Um, that I thought this was just some great lines showing really like the situation of what's going on. Like with the wars between the Habsburgs and the French, you've got, I mean, the Turks invading, the civil wars going on in, um, in Germany. So anyway, um, so starting in line 16, that first sentence that right at the very end when it says, whilst we desired the Commonwealth to be safe, and protected against the arms and insidious designs of the infidels. And it's interesting that they use the word commonwealth, that he remains Christendom. Like, the, the, all of like Christian civilization, he refers to as like the commonwealth of Christendom, um, which is not a term we think of a lot of times referring to the church. But it shows, like, I think it's a great name for, word for the church, because it shows that the church is both temporal and eternal, that it has a horizontal, horizontal layer, um, like the, the visible church, but then like a vertical layer. Like, so the commonwealth of the church. So anyway, protecting against the arms and in insidious designs of the infidels, a.k.a. the Muslims. Yet because of our transgressions and the guilt of us all, indeed, because of the wrath of God hanging over us by reason of our sins, Rhodes has been lost. So that was a big deal because that's where the Knights of Malta had been headquartered. Um, Hungary, ra Hungary ravaged, so Hungary had been lost, Bulgaria, like all of the Balkans. War by land and sea intended and planned against Italy, so they are planning on Muslims invading Italy, and this is actually right before 
how many years before this is like 16 years before the Battle of Lepanto when they try to launch their giant sea invasion of Italy. Um, and against Austria and Illyria, since the Turk, our godless and ruthless enemy, was never at rest and looked upon our mutual enmities and dissensions as his fitting opportunity to carry out his designs with success. But I just think that's a great, beautiful point about the need for Christians sort of like to actually pull together. Um, is that he's like, the, we forget that just because the Muslim world sometimes will fall off our radar, that they are constantly there wanting to convert and take over the Christian lands. And it's not a coincidence that this is the exact time that they start these giant armed invasions of Europe um, soon as Christendom starts to fall apart, um, that they're knocking at the door. So anyway, but the next page. Um, Wherefore, having been called, as we have said, in so great a tempest of heresies, discords and wars, and in such restlessness of the waves to rule and pilot the bark of Peter, and not trusting sufficiently to our own strength, we first of all cast our cares upon the Lord, that he might sustain us and provide our soul with the firmness and strength, our understanding with prudence and wisdom. And then, considering our predecessors, endowed with admirable wisdom and sanctity, had often in the greatest of dangers of the Christian commonwealth, had recourse to ecumenical councils and general assemblies of bishops as the best and most suitable remedy, we also decided to hold a general council. So I think that's great showing like, it is such a mess, like God will fix it, we'll throw our cares upon him. And traditionally when the church faces huge messes, think of like, Arianism, when you had a majority of bishops in the world denying the divinity of Christ. Like, you've had some seriously bad times in the church, and the, the means by which the church has normally addressed it is through ecumenical councils. So he does the same. Um, now, the great thing is, so Tony was talking about doctrine versus reform, that, that compromise right there, the, "Quote unquote," of not using the not answering the question of where the bishop gets his authority and just going straight to the heart of the matter and saying we're not going to even talk about that, but say, but he just needs to be in his diocese. Bam, that you had the same sort of complaint or um, fear by a lot of people, particularly Charles, that with the doctrine that they were going to be too harsh, that the church was just going to be not clear enough, or I mean, was going to be too clear in his doctrine, and you weren't going to be able to bring back the Lutherans, etc. And the great beauty of the, the council is that's exactly what they do. Um, meaning they go full bore with the doctrine, and they are as clear as crystal um, in the doctrine, and they don't pull punches on anything. And the amazing effect later on is that post-Council of Trent, if you see the, the Protestant Reformation like making headway this way, that it's going to swing back the other direction big time. And actually thousands and thousands of Protestants actually do end up returning to the church um, as a result of priests that know what they're doing, um, the clear teaching, and going forth and actually um, like sort of armed with it. Now, one other thing that I think that's great in the Council that I love that the second part that gives me a real um, a different appreciation for when we recite the creed every mass. 
that the second section, the decree concerning the symbol of faith, um, that there's a great line in there, skipping down to line 25, so that's on 496, when it talks about... Um, actually, I'm at the line ahead. In all things, taking the shield of faith, wherewith they may be able to extinguish all the fiery darts, the most wicked one, and take the helmet of hope of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Wherefore, that this pious solicitude um, of the council may begin and continue by the grace of God, it ordains and decrees that before all else a confession of faith be set forth, following herein the examples of the Father. And later on they call it the shield against heresies. So they start by just reciting the Nicene Creed. As and like sort of in some ways as like a symbolic like talisman, like this is our shield of the faith against all heresy and error and trusting that just as the Lord protected the church in the early days against heresies like Arianism and all of the mess of the early church, he'll do the same right now. Which is, I mean, it's a great thing now when you're in mass and we recite that every Sunday, like hey, this is like our symbolic like armor against heresy and error. Um, which, anyway, I just found that kind of beautiful. Um, now, then, any questions so far? All right. Um, now, then I'm going to skip ahead to 497 to the very bottom. I mean, actually, we skip, so I'll just say the decree concerning the canonical scriptures. It's going through and it's just reaffirming the Catholic belief in the infallibility of Scripture. Um, and the decree concerning the addition and use of the sacred books, that it's important that the church, most people actually don't realize that the first time you have an ecumenical council that definitively says, these are the books of the canon of Scripture and no others and all of these is actually at the Council of Trent. And the reason why, it's the same reason why the church does not address papal infallibility until the Second Vatican Council. Or the church does not address the Immaculate Conception until 1851. Is that the church waits until something is questioned and then there's an error and then answers it. So it was understood since you had the church that did put together, like it was through the ordinary magisterium of the church, outside of ecumenical councils, the canon of Scripture, that it was understood that the canon of Scripture, which is the entire Catholic Bible, um, was Scripture. Like so, that when Martin Luther took out seven books, that he was taking away from the infallible books of the Bible of Scripture, from the infallible canon. So that way, it was at Trent, though, that they say, all right, time out. For the first time, someone is actually starting to question what Scripture itself is, what books of the Bible are itself. Like, we're giving you the list to make sure that there's no mistake and there's no error. And that decree concerning the addition and use of the sacred books, one of the things that it's important for pointing out is that one of the myths that Protestants used to like to promulgate and still do is that Catholics church wouldn't allow the Bible to just be translated willy-nilly, um, that you couldn't just print any edition of the Bible. They wanted to make sure it was actually printed correctly and translated correctly, um, which kind of makes sense. It's kind of like if you were an author of a book, and you probably wouldn't be happy if somebody started translating your own book without your permission, writing commentaries about the book that you wrote 
without your permission and giving their interpretations of the book that you wrote without your permission um, and getting it wrong. That that would probably annoy you quite a bit. And so actually on the next page in 497, they have, there's a key part in line six up near the top when it says, and the notes and commentaries therein of all Persians indiscriminately, often with the name of the press omitted, often also under a fictitious press name, and what is worse, without the name of the author, um, and indiscreetly have for sale such books printed elsewhere. So they're saying, don't do this. That people were, like, you wouldn't just print, these, they weren't just printing Bibles, they weren't just printing translations, they were printing translations with, you have the Bible on one side, and an anti-Catholic commentary trying to misinterpret the scripture on the other side. So when you get figures like John Wycliffe, or William Tyndale in England, William Tyndale, who um, St. Thomas More had burnt at the stake um, as Chancellor of England, it was because, not that he translated the Bible into English, but he did so with heretical commentary and was printing it without against the, breaking the law by going around and printing it and distributing it. Um, so that, it's not the translation part that's bad, it's the commentaries, the heretical commentaries that go with it. Um, does that make sense? I thought that was an interesting point. Um, now, one of the biggest and most important things that they did at the council was addressing the topic of justification, like how we become Christian. And the reason why they do that, obviously, is that's what's at the heart of the Reformation. So the Reformation starts with Martin Luther's... Um, I was going to say his epiphany in the privy, um, but we'll cut that out of the recording, but it's true. Um, that Martin Luther's epiphany that he thought he was saved by faith alone and his overthrowing of the traditional Catholic understanding of justification. And it was in defense of that position that he later developed his other positions of sola scriptura, that because remember that when the church sent a theologian, Johann Eck, to go argue with him over the topic of man's being saved by faith alone, that at first Martin Luther said, well, can't we please have an ecumenical council to address the matter? Because um, he was confident, he thought, an ecumenical council, because he thought the Holy Spirit was on his side, that an ecumenical council would come down on his side. And when Johann Eck pointed out that ecumenical councils had actually already addressed that topic and gave him the references showing where it had been condemned, that's what he had famously called for his break and came back in and said, I have a new like revelation, sola scriptura, meaning ecumenical councils can be wrong, so therefore scripture alone. But it starts with his heretical view on justification. So, um, so there's a reason why a large portion of it starts with the proper teaching of justification. Um, and the, the amazing thing about the church's teaching on justification is that justification is a difficult issue to address when, when trying to address Martin Luther for two reasons. One reason is in every heresy in the church stems from one of three great mysteries. Uh, you have mysteries of the, the mystery of the Trinity. God is three persons, one God. So that both and at the same time, that all, most, a lot of early church heresies were 
trying to go emphasize one over the other. God is three persons, and ultimately three gods. Or God is one, and therefore not a trinity. Holding both of those truths in tension is at the heart of that heresy. Or the second great mystery, that Christ is fully God and fully man while remaining one person. The hypostatic union. That tons of heresies try to go one direction or the other. God is, or Christ is fully God, but he wasn't really a man. Christ was just a man, but he wasn't fully God. He was just like some sort of super angel. The idea that he's 100% man, 100% God, that Christ gets to be 200%. Like those are two great truths holding intention. But the, the third one that is important for justification that they have to, that they address and they address early is that nothing happens outside of God's control. That original sin is a fact. We are not able to be saved without God's grace. That he, his providence is in charge, control of everything. Like we can do no good apart from grace. But we have free will at the same time. That that is a huge um, issue of the Reformation, particularly from the Calvinist um, side, because that's what John Calvin does, is unable to hold those truths in tension. He throws free will out the window. But the church, very early on in the justification, that they, that they take a position that it's both and. And the way they do so is it's very simple and very clear. In line 19, actually we'll start up at the top of that section, in the necessity the decree concerning justification. Um, it is furthermore declared that in adults, the beginning of that justification must proceed from the predisposing grace of God through Jesus Christ, that is from his vocation, that is from his vocation, whereby without any merits of their part, they are called that they who by sin had been cut off from God may be disposed through his quickening and helping grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting and cooperating with that grace. So the point is, it's, they, it's a bo- they emphasize the both and by saying like, you can only do good things through grace. You're only able to come to Christ through grace. However, still having free will at the same time, the key part is you can reject that grace. Therefore, when they talk about cooperating, cooperating with grace is not rejecting it. It's kind of like Mary. Her fiat, the, the greatest thing that she did, saying, wasn't, wasn't initiating the, or the Annunciation. She didn't go to the Archangel Gabriel herself and say, hey, um, can I bear Jesus? She just said, or she didn't say no. That is what her fiat is. So that is what cooperation is, is it's, it's not saying no. Um, so that's how you have that both end. You're good by grace, but we still have free will, which is important because if we didn't have free will, God, would, I mean, through a logical conclusion of that, is that God would be responsible for evil because every time we do evil, it'd be him making us do it. Um, just as every time we do good, it'd be him making us do it. But said the church says, no, it's we God can do only good through grace, but we can also still have free will, so we can still therefore choose evil of our own free will. And therefore, that's where the cooperation comes in. But then, the second, so that's the second part of justification that's important that they address, that mystery there. But then the second part that makes it a little difficult is the church's understanding of justification is so rich 
that it's like app, talking like apples and oranges sometimes with Martin Luther and the Lutheran. That Luther takes just such a sort of flimsy view of justification, where it's this forensic view that all you have like, that it's not that any transformation takes place within you, it's just that God declares that you're justified without actually making you just. He, it, we call it, um, what's the legal term for it? Forensic justification. That God just declares that you're just, but doesn't do anything to actually try to transform you and make you holier or anything like that. So you're still evil, etc. So actually at the core of it is, part, you can't see, this is why all theological things sort of tie together, is a faulty view of the sacraments in that Martin Luther doesn't think that baptism fully washes away original sin. He believes it washes away original sin, kind of, but that you still have some sin left, and therefore you can't do good. Um, and therefore, you're not going to ever become holier here on earth because that, that stain is still there. Um, but it's important that the church says, like, no, like baptism transforms from the inside, and therefore justification, it isn't just this forensic, you have faith, and therefore you're like, become a Christian and you're going to be saved. It's no, like, when you are baptized, the transformation of the whole self begins, and you receive faith, believing in God, um, and everything is revealed, you receive hope that ability to trust in God and His promises, that looking to the future. But you also receive charity, that ability to love God. Like, it all goes together. Like, you get transformed from within. You, that, that justification, sanctification, like, they all go together. And you can't just take one apart from the other. So, like, so in some ways, it's, like, ap completely, like I say, it's apples and oranges because it's such a, a flint hit a flimsy way of like understanding like, well, I just have this intellectual belief and I somehow am justified, but I'm never going to become any holier here on earth. And it's like that. So the idea of being saved by faith alone, it makes no sense to the Catholic understanding, which is like, no, like salvation is Christ transforming the entire person to be more like him. Is faith part of that? Sure. Could you say that faith is the starting point of that? You could. Um, but it's faith working in hope and with charity. You can't have the faith by itself. Um, so you can say, actually, the church has said, you can say man is saved by faith through grace. And as part of, with that faith, though, comes hope and charity. Like, so it's incomplete to say that by itself. Um, it's well, just... Well, oh, did you really? Um... I'll have to go back and listen. But anyway, now I want to use my last five minutes to skip to the anathemas because they're great. Um, you don't have these because they were long. Um, you have some of them, but I think I had it. There's a few at the end of, oh, consider, or regarding the sacraments in general. Um, there were some anathemas, so you can see what they look like. But the ones I was going to... Um, read were on justification. So they've got some great ones on original sin. Um, they're saying exactly what original sin is. But the ones on justification, that this is great. So the, the first anathema for any Protestant that says that Catholics believe that they earn their salvation 
it's great to start with the first anathema and justification at Trent. That if anyone says that man is justified before God by his own works, whether done through the teaching of human nature or law, without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is given that only that man may live justly and merit eternal life, as if by free will without grace, he could do both, let him be anathema. If anyone says that without the inspiration and help of the Holy Ghost, man can believe, hope, love, or be penitent as he ought, so the grace of justification be bestowed upon him, let him be anathema. Um, I mean that, but then later on, it goes down. Hold on, let me find the right one. See, here's key against Martin Luther. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing but confidence in divine mercy, let him be anathema. If anyone says that it is necessary for everyone to believe that their sins are forgiven, this is actually a kind of a cool one. If anyone says that it is necessary for everyone to believe that their sins are forgiven, let him be anathema. Um, meaning, you, this one's explained by the next one. Um, if anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he believed himself absolved and justified, let him be anathema. That it, the, the merit of our salvation, it is not dependent upon like a standard of do I feel myself forgiven enough? Meaning that this is an important key with all the sacraments, that the sacraments, that they receive their power from Christ alone. And that therefore, that the amount of grace that we receive from them, it does, um, like our, disposi our disposition does um, predispose us for the receiving of grace. But when we are receiving grace objectively through a sacrament, that it's, there isn't some level of faith necessary to make the sacrament valid. Meaning, um, you don't have, if you don't have en like enough faith, quote-unquote, being baptized, the sacrament doesn't necessarily become like invalid. Or if a priest is saying Mass, and he's struggling with the faith over whether the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, it has no effect on whether it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. Um, so, I think that's a key part, because that's the start of where everything started in the Reformation. Martin Luther didn't feel himself forgiven. Um, and so that's the key right there. Just because he didn't feel himself forgiven doesn't mean he wasn't forgiven. Um, so, that anyway, I thought that was really neat right there. Um, but, I mean, you, these are worth reading. And like I said, I didn't print them out. Just, if you just search canons of the Council of Trent. Wikipedia has them nicely laid out, and they are, they are a very nice, simple, good read. Um, they've got whole sections on the sacraments, going through baptism, going through the Eucharist, and they are, if you like clear teaching, and if you get um, frustrated at times when bishops or different people, I mean, this is St. Mary's, where everything's always clear from the pulpit. But that's not the same place at all churches in America, and if you like, don't like obfuscation, if you don't like blurry lines, you'll love the canons of the Council of Trent. Like, go through it, the church is just crystal clear, like, this is it. you're not saved by your own free will, but you still have free will. You're not saved by faith alone, um, like, your, how you live matters. Um, and anyway, I highly recommend going through the reading. I only took out, like, you know, in 20 minutes, you can only take out a few highlights here and there.